Welcome, everybody, to the new, brand spanking new, podcast from Bloomberg Politics. It's called The Culture Caucus. I'm John Heilman. And I am Will Leach. He is Will Leach. And we, are, and we are here to launch this new podcast, which is going to talk about the intersection of politics and popular culture, mass culture, mass entertainment, sports, music, mm-hmm. film, TV, talk shows, technology, anything. Tomagotchis. Any, Tomagotchi. Anything that is a place where politics lives outside the narrow uh, confines of uh, electoral politics. Where the real world. The real world. The place where most people live and the most <laughs> yes. people experience their politics. In truth, not the people who are crazy uh, political junkies who follow um, narrow uh, cast political news all the time. And not Pre- even present company excluded. From well, those, of yes, course. of course. We are both we are both junkies of the highest caliber. But the truth is, there is a much broader spectrum mm-hmm. of political information and political news. And those are the kinds of things that Will and I are going to be talking about here on the brand new podcast called Culture Caucus. And of course, you can always find this podcast at BloombergPolitics.com. Mm-hmm. And occasionally, we may even be talking about things that are on this podcast on the daily television show with all due respect that I host with my colleague Mark Halpern and that Will occasionally appears on uh, talking brilliantly about the very kinds of topics that we're going to talk about on this podcast. Okay, so thank you everyone for coming. Have a wonderful week. We'll talk to you <laughs> in two weeks. All right, podcast over. <laughs> uh, so Will, it's, it's a new year. We're mm. just kicking off 2016. Uh, we've just finished 2015. And, and when it comes to the topics at hand, it seems to me that one of the most compelling stories of the year has been the tsunami that's mm. washed over the world of late night television. Um, you have written about this, talked about this, covered this, thought about this a lot over the course of the last year. Tell, tell me what it means that basically the entire uh, former hierarchy, the former order uh, that governed our late night world has been upended. Yeah, it's been a busy year for Bill Carter. The, yeah. uh, the, the New York Times, uh, me before, he always covers talk, talk shows. Yeah, uh, of course, Letterman retired this year, which everyone thought was going to be the biggest thing. Letterman, this lion of the industry, uh, you know, been doing it for 30 years. He retired, but then Jon Stewart left, and that changed the, all, the way that show worked. And then when Stewart, uh, and then Colbert got Letterman's show, and it really altered the entire landscape in a way that we really haven't seen, even when Conan O'Brien left, uh, with all drama with Conan O'Brien and, and Jay Leno, this actually really changed it in a lot more ways because it brought a more of a wide variety of voices. There's now more talk. It's unbelievable how many shows there are. There are more coming. Samantha B has a show that's, co- that's going on TBS, and uh, and Chelsea uh, Chelsea uh, Handler's getting a show on Netflix, which is unusual. I'm curious how a talk show will work on Netflix. But, uh, um, you know, so it, the, there's so many... It actually, it's kind of paralleling the media universe in general and the idea that, like, you know, the idea of talk shows started with the idea that Johnny Carson said goodnight to you every night. And everyone right. gathered around, and now everybody has their own talk show. Particularly in this year, you know, politics is it's the manna for talk shows it is the, the the lifeblood of how they work and it's interesting to see how some shows like Jimmy Fallon's show for example that's a show which is the ratings leader like that is the one that, that gets the highest ratings and it's it, it, there's an argument to be made that he is the new Leno and I don't mean just that he hosts the Today Show the right. Today Show but is the show that is wants to be as not edgy as possible that wants to offend as fewer people as possible and just make it a very comfortable experience for everyone involved I find it fascinating how Stephen Colbert's show, of course, him having a political background, has his show has become the place where, ironically enough, for this guy that played this right-wing character, is the one that has had the most interesting conversations. He had Donald Trump on, and the first thing he did was apologize to him. He had Ted Cruz on and, and told his audience to be quiet when they started to boo him. It's really been kind of fascinating to think to see how political conversations being incorporated uh, into the shows, and which shows aren't. Conan O'Brien has never had a political campaign, uh, uh, a political politician on ever, and frankly, his show's not very relevant anymore. So I think that it's, it's worth noting how that's all changed. All right. So, Will, all of that's brilliant, but I want to step back and just think about this from a kind of structural point of view, right? The most important reason, the reason why this, uh, the, the turnover, why the shift, the tectonic plate shifting and uh, late night has mattered so much, starts with the fact that there was a new order in late night that got created by Stewart and Colbert. And you, uh, beyond, the, in some ways, those two shows, uh, The Daily Show and, and Colbert, 
in some ways overshadowed in a political sense. They mm-hmm. overshadowed the importance of of Leno, of Letterman, uh, of Conan, of uh, of anybody else who was doing that stuff on the much higher rated network shows. Mm-hmm. Right? They became in the political world, at least, they became. Um, arbiters. They became. Uh, they offered a running commentary. Uh, they became an expression of a particular kind of a worldview, for sure. And yeah. if you think about like a lot of liberal, relatively sophisticated viewers. They were the lodestars for. Um, for, for first for opposition to the yeah. Bush administration primarily, and then uh, offering a certain kind of a critique of the Obama administration, not nearly as frontal right. as the one in the Bush in the Bush years. Then, but to have those two guys leave yeah. in the same year, right? First of all, Comedy Central, not at, at this point. We'll talk about Trevor Noah in a second, mm. but um, a huge blow to Comedy yeah. Central, right? As a as a force in the world, at least in terms of uh, current affairs or in terms of uh, the political. Uh, process, but the fact that they both departed, and then the fact that Colbert made this move into what you want to call might want to call mainstream late night, that seems to me to be the the core significance. That's where things why this year feels so different and so much more important in the context of an election year, a presidential election year, and in the context of a presidential election year that is really interesting and offers really ripe opportunities mm-hmm. for humor. And on top of that. Is a year that features Donald Trump, <laughs> yes. who is like the candidate that all of yeah. these people, whether they are more political or less political, have been kind of having, you know, quasi-sexual fantasies about having as a presidential candidate for over a decade. That was the first thing, first public statement David Letterman said after he retired was when he showed up at a, at a, a Steve Martin Martin Short concert in Vegas and said, "I can't believe I quit right before Donald Trump got in the race." Right. You know, right. certainly he has been this character for a long time. Though it's interesting because you know. It was. It's telling that when John Stewart and Stephen Colbert, you know, they didn't have, they have these feuds with news organizations. Like it was strange because you know, the thing that was always often often found frustrating about John Stewart, as much as you, whether you, as much as I enjoyed the show, was he would do a lot of, hey, I'm just a comedian. Right. I'm just a comedian. I'm right. not. I'm not a news guy like these guys. Yet he was. Fi- Tussling with news guys. These were, these were always news events, and a large number of people were seeing this. And so you saw this in the reaction to Trevor Noah when when Stewart left. There was this sense. The reason, if Trevor Noah were just some guy taking over a comedy show, no one would have cared that he had insensitive tweets to certain people. Right. It was that the show represented a worldview to a lot of people, and Noah seemed to be someone that didn't reflect that in a way that the audience had gotten very used to. So what? Why I think it was easier for Colbert to make that transition to CBS than it would have been for Stewart is Colbert... Yes, he was always playing this blowhard right-wing character, but there were seeds of humanity and seeds of trying to be less overtly a political show as Stewart. Stewart would go on polemics. Right. Sure. Stewart would, would go right. in and you know, he would host this rally and he would implore us to just be sane, everyone. Yeah. And meanwhile, and, while, and if you remember when Colbert was on that rally, he showed up and did something absurd and surreal and then left. Yes, and seemed vaguely embarrassed to be there exactly. in some ways, exactly. as close as he was to Stewart. Exactly. So I think that is telling it that, you know, the idea, what I find interesting about Colbert, though, is that like he's now trying to transition that into a mainstream way, while Still having an edge and a and a and a worldview that say Jimmy Fallon does not, while still being a, being a mainstream guy, and I think it's it's funny to see how all these different people are all trying to find both their niche and still expand it. So let me ask you these two questions, right? Because I was gonna uh, my first question was gonna be, so you're watching Trevor Noah, right? Yeah, I mean, you better be because we're paying you. To do that, <laughs> yes, so yes. I yes. assume you're watching that show. Yeah. So how's he doing? There's been improvement, I think, even in the last month or month and a half. He's getting more... At first, he was a little awkward just because the interviews were a problem. The interviews are always a problem for, for a new, host, new host. It's a very difficult thing to, like, find... His first interview was with Kevin Hart, and he had talked about how big his arms were. Like, it was very difficult. He had a hard time with it. And when Chris Christie was on, who was his first politician, it was a very content-free conversation. Right. But the thing that, that Noah's gotten good about... The key to Noah... The thing that helped him with the transition, he has the same writing team. Like he's lost John Stewart as a writer, but otherwise it's generally the same writing team. So what what they needed to figure out how to write for him, what they figured out is, and then what he's having more success in is he's able to because this is such an absurd political year already. Right. He's able to be like. 
to be, take an outsider notion in a legitimate, not in the John Stewart speaking truth to power idea, but the what in the world kind of system have you people created for right. yourself? Right. Sort he's, of way. He's literally the alien dropped onto a onto like a, new, onto a onto a new planet, exactly. and kind of looking around and saying, "What the fuck is going on?" Exactly, and yeah. like that has served him well. Once the writers figured out how to write that for him, he, you know, whatever your thoughts about Noah in the first couple weeks, he's a talented performer. You yeah, know? I, I I wrote about this on on Blue Politics when he was announced that he. Uh, he's a, he was always he's a just naturally com- natural comedic talent. I don't know if he was a natural political talent. You know, I think that he's just funny. He does he's he's very versatile performer. But I think they need to figure out how to write for him. Now he has he he hasn't mastered it yet. But he's there's there is a lot of blood to be mined from the idea of in this particularly insane year, this guy beaming in and being like. There is. It's not like this in South Africa, right, people. Right, right, <laughs> and right. I, th- I think that is yes, that, and, that's an advantage. Yes, and for those of us of a certain age, the notion that South Africa would exactly. be would, would be, would be the, the would be the model of a kind of more <laughs> rational political system yes, seems yeah. a little like it gives you a sense of just of how um, crazy things. So are. he's making progress, yeah. and also his not to uh, not the ratings is the end all be all and stuff. Right. But he's actually they're, they're down from John Stewart, but not dramatically. So Larry Wilmer Moore has actually lost a lot. For more percentage of Stephen Colbert's audience than uh, than Noah has, he's rebounding. I think at first there was a sense of oh, this guy's going to fall on his face, something's bad going to happen. I say he is not out of the woods yet, but I think there's been clear improvement. I think you're seeing it uh, in both the ratings and I think the response. So now I want to talk about we want to talk about about Colbert and we want to talk about uh, Kimmel. We want to talk about Fallon and talk about the three big the network big shows. We want to talk about that in a second because of course those uh, venues have, over the course of our lifetimes, become important places where politicians go to do a certain kind of work. They go there to uh, accomplish things. Mm-hmm. Uh, some of them go there to humanize themselves. Some of them go there to show that they're funny, which is part and parcel of humanizing yourself. Some of them go there uh, to, to clean up a mess. Um, sometimes they go there for... There, there are a whole variety of things that those sh- shows uh, provide a forum for that's sort of different. I, I would say, importantly, in, in the cases of uh, Bill Clinton, in the cases of, of George W. Bush, in the case of Barack Obama, part of the way in which they all demonstrated that they were top-tier political talents was their ability to go on those shows and do them well, yeah. right? And there's a kind of thing, if you're going to be president of the United States in the world that we now live in, the ability to perform in those kinds of venues. You know, we used to say about Barack Obama that he was the kind of guy, when you knew he could be president in some ways, was when he, you could see that he could be as comfortable uh, in on a Sunday show on Meet the Press as he was on uh, Letterman, on Monday Night Football and on Oprah, like that's a that's right. that's that's high level performance skills. That's someone who could maybe be president of the United States in the fractured, complicated media environment that we now live. So those are three big important venues. We'll talk about them in mm-hmm. one second. Um, but I want to ask you about Seth Meyers before we do that, yeah. just because it seems to me that the decline, whatever you think about Trevor Noah and whether mm-hmm. he has potential, that the fact that Comedy Central is no longer the alternative, the, the right. obvious go-to alternative for politically-minded viewers in late night, alternative venue, right? Where if you want to mm-hmm. just hear Betty, a lot of talk about politics, that's where you go, has benefited Seth Meyers more than anyone because yeah. he is the guy who's out there doing probably the most political of any of these shows. He seems to have, I mean, it's not 100% politics. Right. It's not the, uh, trying to re- recreate the Daily Show. But he's the but, weekend update guy. But like, he's the, is, yes, right. and he has very, and you know, he's famous for the, his work of the week, uh, for what he did the White House Correspondence Dinner a couple years mm-hmm. ago and took Trump down. He's got very, um, uh, pretty well-articulated, pretty clear political mm-hmm. convictions. They come through in his comedy. So just talk about, about the rise, uh, what I would call the rise of Seth Meyers in this moment. Yeah, you know, and he has an advantage too that Colbert doesn't have and that Colbert can't make can't, probably just can't make his show as political as, as Seth Meyers is just because it's on earlier like you know it is the the affiliates will start hollering you know there's one of the it's interesting to see that how late that that show specifically late night you know that at first it started out with Letterman being you know it's, it's always a place where people do the alternative thing it's the right. it's the place where they have the freedom to be their truest selves and to be a little weirder and to be more interesting letterman did it with the this ironic anti-comedy thing conan did it with silliness and i find it telling that the world has progressed to the point that actually doing smart political comedy is the late night show that you do now and he is terrific at you know it was it's it's telling that those shows 
have had so little change in so long that him doing the monologue behind the desk was like this revolutionary moment. Right. They could wow, he's gonna sit down and do the monologue. And yeah, that's it's not that weird, but yeah. it really blew people away. And he has he's embraced it. You know, he's he's doing it. It's funny. He's do, he does these segments that are like seven or eight minutes long, sort of John Oliver esque, right. but not as not as overtly. No, they're they're easier. They're they're a guy that's been on SNL rather well, than and like they're, and, and they're not driven by. I mean, the the, by the, a fierce, the Oliver right. segments are polemical right. and and they're journalism in a way. Right, I right, mean, right. they're not they're not ch- chat show, right? That's right, they're right. building. They're sending out a team to do right. effectively investigative journalism on a policy issue, right. and then building comedy on top of that, which right. is a really it's a it's impressive. It's a, a, totally impressive mm-hmm. and kind of incredible what they do. But it's a very different kind of skill than yeah. running a talk show. Yeah, and they also do it once a week for right. like, for, yes. like for, for like two months with a vast team right. that's. Been like right. a month and a half on every one of those and segments. And Seth Meyers is doing this every night. And right. I think that, you know, that's, remember, he wasn't just the host of Weekend Update. He was the head writer for Saturday Night Live for yeah. a long time. This is in his strike zone. And I, I think, you know, when Weekend Update was at its best, Myers was like he was one of the key guys. I yeah. think Tina Fey and and Amy Poehler they they were also very skilled at. But like th- this is totally something that he's comfortable with and has done for a long time. So because of that, it's become like that show is where you get that. You're right that. Daily Show political commentary that you used to in a way where you feel like he's not John Stewart yet because I think Stewart is still Stewart is still there's something as much as I like John Stewart there is always something a little self-aggrandizing and a little back self backpedaling right. on it I'm not sure Myers Myers is a more polished mainstream entertainer yeah. I, I might say in that regard but I do think that those people that were that that were angry at Trevor Noah and wanted that person to tell them what to think, which is really what the Daily Show was for a lot of people. Tell me how to think about this. There's this thing happened. Oh, John Stewart's going to have something great to say about that. I think Myers has filled that role. So I'm a presidential candidate, right? Mm. I'm really not a presidential candidate. Not yet. To, to be clear, not, not yet. yes, not, not yet. ever. I, the, the America has changed in a lot of ways, but uh, uh, convicted <laughs> felons will not be put in the White House anytime soon. If people listen, so that, if the people that keeps call. me that keeps me out. Nice. Um, all right, so I'm a presidential candidate, and I'm thinking about going on a late-night show. And I'm thinking about, obviously, for ratings reasons, I'm thinking about ABC, CBS, uh, NBC. I go to my communications director, and I say, I want to do one of these shows, um, but I don't watch them because I'm a presidential I'm candidate. I'm, I'm busy. busy. I don't, I'm not up that late, and i got to be up at 3 in the morning. Um, there's these guys who host these shows now that I've probably not really ever heard of because no. they're named Fallon uh, and Kimmel, and maybe I've heard of this Colbert guy, but those are the three guys. The guy, Mr. Communications Director, tell me, or Ms. Communications Director, tell me, like, what do I, how do I choose between these three, and what's the difference in the reception that I'm likely to get? How do we pick? How do we choose among these three, given the way they now operate? So just take me through those three and what I would want to, what I would what would be the, the challenges I would face on each, and what would be the big upside that I would get from going on any one of them? Okay, well, we'll start with Kimmel, because I think he's he's, he's currently third in the 18 to 49 rating mark, but he's doing doing very well. He, and he's a little bit harder edged than Fallon, but not quite as naturally inquisitive as, as Colbert. So Fall, uh, Kimmel's advantage of politicians is the same one he has with celebrities. He is very good at making celebrities feel comfortable and act like they're all in this big party that he's hosting. Right. And so uh, I think one of Obama's great late night appearances was when he read mean tr- presidential tweets, which right. is a very common uh, Jimmy, Jimmy Kimmel thing. It's a very funny segment. Right. Athletes do it. Celebrities do it. It's a very funny, funny thing. It's I, I think one of the great brilliant It's very things. clever. And just to tease forward in our show, we're going to later talk to Fred Wilson, the venture capitalist who was one of the guys who put the money in to Twitter that started that innovation that now feeds into not just our politics and how we cover our politics in general, but also very specifically into the late night format that we're now talking about. Yeah, and that was, you know, it's a very brilliant idea. And it's and it's not, you know, Kimmel is not a strong interviewer. He's more of a jovial, you know, uh, Tell, tell me something about what it's like at home. You know, what's it like running for president? He's not a, a strong interview, but there's also a cynicism to his worldview right. that there's risks involved there. Because sometimes, yeah, at a certain level, you know, he's he's not going to completely fall over for you, right. but he's also not going to like ask probing questions. Right. So whereas someone that might fall over for you would be Jimmy Fallon. Jimmy right. Fallon right. is, <laughs> and I and, and Jimmy Fallon, you know, it's is, like the golden retriever. He is, of he is t- definitely talk the golden shows. retriever, yeah. and you know th- that is not to everyone's taste, but it's certainly to more people's taste than the other shows. because yeah. that is the advantage of going on his show. It's enormously popular, and you will not. He is there to make you 
look good. He is there no matter what. He is not going to do anything that's going to embarrass you. That is the opposite of what his show does for celebrities as well as politicians. You're right. not. He, he'll throw in one question of, so, um, you know, what about this Muslim ban to Trump? Just so we acknowledge the elephant in the room that this person is running for president. Otherwise, the, it, it is a content-free show in a lot of ways. Right. And I think it's one of the reasons he's had success. Right. Okay. And that you know, that leads, brings us back now to Colbert. I just want to say about Kimmel, by the way, the, and we'll talk uh, when we get a little further in this conversation. I want to talk about Trump specifically, but I thought the Kimmel thing that he did uh, late last year with uh, with Green Eggs and Ham or, with, yeah, uh, or yeah. the Dr. Seuss, right. Dr. Seuss where, he, where he read the Dr. Seuss, uh, the, the Trump the Trump eyes Dr. Seuss thing with Trump on set right, right, right. was as kind of brilliant yeah. as anything because it was lacerating and 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 absurdist yeah. in the uh, the phrase you used but Trump couldn't help but kind of be like charmed yeah, right, by it because right. it was sort of also quite funny. So I've ghost written a book that I put your name on, okay? And it's called Winners Aren't Losers. Here are some frogs I do not like at all. We must kick these frogs out and then build a wall. Oh, the places you'll go on your yacht, on your plane, with your suits from Milan and your wives from Ukraine. Oh, the buildings you'll build, oh, the wealth you'll amass, oh, the people around you all kissing your ass. There are two kinds of people. Which one will you be? A loser like them, would you like to finish? Or a winner like me? It was a shot, but not a full frontal shot right, in a right, lot of ways. Totally. And what's interesting is someone like Colbert, who is basically trying to thread the needle on this stuff. Colbert is trying to, you know, one of the first things, you know, Jeb Bush was on his first episode, yeah. and he made a big show of say, of thanking Jeb Bush for coming on, right. because I know, because, you know, as we all know, a lot of people have this idea, because he played that character for so long, that he would, he's this Jon Stewart type character, right. and he's not. Right. And I think, you know, he has been very good about having Republican candidates on. Yep. Again, Ted Cruz, he, 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 it's like stopped the interview mid talk and said, stop booing my guest. He's my guest. We don't do that here. If you want to change the marriage laws, I'm, I'm asking what you I, want. I believe in democracy. I believe in democracy. And I don't think we should no, 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 trust. No, guys, guys, however you feel, he's my guest. So please don't boo him. That is a direct rebuke. To, to a John Stewart mindset yeah. is yeah. to it's like we are not all on just this side. Right. This is a guess we're all talking about this together. And so because of that, you know, obviously Joe Biden is the most famous interview that he's had. You know, Colbert is a more natural interviewer. He's a more nat. The the theme of his show, is, like his band is called Stay Human. Like the, the theme of right. his show is humanity. We are all in this together. There's this political world matters. We're all trying to be funny, but this it's not. It is meant to be a welcoming place for interesting discussion. He was on Face the Nation this weekend uh, with John Dickerson, and frankly had uh, was as interesting had was as a pundit had a lot of interesting things to say. That's what the show is trying to be: is this welcoming place where you can have an a not elevated conversation it's still a comedy right. show but to be able so when he's had guests on he asked them interesting questions his interview with Ted Cruz was fascinating I actually felt like I learned it was the first time you'd seen Cruz outside sometimes right. of that little circle and frankly even though uh, Colbert challenged him on a lot of things I think it humanized Cruz in, in a lot of ways and I think uh, got some sympathy for some people right I, th I think the thing about Colbert that has become clear if you watch the Colbert interviews with Biden obviously famously as you mm -hmm. pointed out incredibly moving um, Biden, in some ways, at his absolute best, and and a, a, a very kind of revealing. Everybody watched that and thought it was yeah. a, not just a deeply revealing of Biden, but also that Colbert was able to draw him out the way that he did. It was kind of a tour de force of interviewing. And then you saw the Cruz interview. And if I were, again, to go back to my original conceit here, if I were a communications director or if I was a presidential candidate asking my communications director, I would say, I would say, isn't Colbert dangerous? Yeah. You know, isn't he the, the most dangerous one here? He mocked Bill O'Reilly in some sense with his whole show. Previously, am I really going to get a fair shake? He's the most political. He's not a golden retriever. Isn't he a little dangerous? If I were the communications director, I'd say, Watch this Biden interview, yeah. and now watch this Cruz interview. Right. And it's important to watch both of them, right. that he could do these kind of interviews with two politicians at the opposite ends of the ideological spectrum and bring out things in both of them that were really appealing and that were in, that the, the intelligence of how Colbert approached both was, in, was essential to making those moments happen. It's a higher-risk proposition to go on Colbert, right. I would say, than go right. on either with Kimmel or with Fallon. But the reward is also potentially much higher. If, if Cruz ends up getting that nomination and needs to pivot to a to to a general election, 
they're going to need to watch that appearance because right. that is that is exactly w- the way they want Ted Cruz to come across. And right. again, even if you disagree with Tom Cruise, Tom Cruise, Ted Cruz, even if you disagree with Ted <laughs> Tom Cruise, or Ted Cruz, yes, yes, I'm waiting for Ted <laughs> yeah, Cruz I, to I, do I, the I, I find my I actually frankly find Tom Cruise more disagreeable than I find <laughs> Ted Cruz, and that you know that's a, quite a high bar. Well, we'll you know, see if Ted stuff. Cruz, as I said, jumps on one of the show's couches. Right. But, okay, so let me would wrap up this segment just by talking real quick about Donald Trump because, as we jokingly mm-hmm. said before, kind of like God's gift to late night comedy, <laughs> yeah. right? Every uh, uh, late night talk show host has reveled in it, has uh, has gone after Trump in every way imaginable. It's like that all the pent up jokes that they've had for years and years came kind of tumbling out on television. Who do you think has handled Trump best among all of them? And, and use best meaning by whatever metric you want to uh, you want to employ. Uh, well, back in the day, Letterman was great at it. Letterman yeah. treated him like Tony Randall or right. treated him like Marv Albert. <laughs> like he treated him as this wacky character that came on and did wacky things. And yeah. Trump got to do wacky things and had fun with him. And I think and occasionally Letterman would call him out and Trump would be like, oh, you got me. And it was it really felt like a performance in a way that's different now. If just because Trump is, you know, frankly, a lot older than all of these guys. And I think that, you know, they're and uh, he doesn't see them as contemporary. So he's performing. He, you know, he loves to mock them. Like uh, uh, we talked about Seth Meyers. He like hammers Seth Meyers repeatedly, I think, because of that correspondence dinner. Yeah, right. But, you know, it's interesting to like when he was on Colbert. Colbert, it was not one of Colbert's better interviews because right. Trump is playing a different game than Colbert. Colbert is trying to have a conversation. Trump is not interested in a conversation. Trump, Trump was is, Trump was very much trying to, I thought, there. He was like just, he wanted to get credit for going on the show. But didn't want to do anything. But didn't That's want right. to do anything and was very, I like thought. Like the end of some of the debates. It was frankly. one of the rare moments where you saw Trump being kind of gun shy. Yeah. It was kind of like, yeah. I, I'm like, I'm, I'm looking for traps here. Right. And somehow right. I'm going to end up falling into something. So I'm just going to nod and smile right. and get off the stage before I get off camera before anything bad happens to me. Yeah, it was, it was. Was. It was an awkward, weird interview. Whereas, I, amusingly enough, he went on Fallon and it w- w- content free, but it was probably Trump's best appearance on right. any of these shows. Yeah, uh, uh, because he was, you know, Fallon does a Trump impression, a bad one, I might add, but he does a Trump, and he, Fallon's a good impersonator, but Trump is not maybe in his strike zone. But, like, you know, this is, Trump is. That is a show that's purely for entertainment. You know, and as you talked about, one of the things you knew about Obama was when he was as comfortable on these shows as he was in the Sunday, was in the Sunday talk shows. Trump, Fallon's show is made for someone like Trump right. because Fallon is never going to look past the actual service. Hey, he's really entertaining. He's the way that everybody, that the vast majority of the country was about Trump when this race started, before really when everyone started looking into the stances. Hey, he's an entertainer. He's funny. Right. Let him, let, look, what kind and of look crazy, at that hair. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. What crazy thing is he going to do next? He's orange. He's on Oompa Loompa, yeah. and that plays, frankly, right into Trump for a show like that. So, All right, so you're listening to the Culture Caucus. This is John Heilman. With I'm Will Leach. And there's my colleague, Will Leach. Um, we're here to talk about the intersection of politics and mass culture, um, and this is our inaugural uh, podcast. Mm-hmm. We're very excited about doing it. Um, you can find this podcast at BloombergPolitics.com. Or you can email us at culturecaucus at gmail.com. I assume we'll be on iTunes as well. You'll be able to oh, that's going to be fantastic. Okay. So for the first guest on this, um, hopefully... Um, uh, in perpetually running. This will run yes. until the earth crashes into the sun. Yeah, so on the end, and we'll and just... If, be endlessly entertaining and engrossing. Uh, we're always going to have a guest. That's mm-hmm. the thing. We're going to always have a guest every single time we do this. And today, for our first guest, we have a gentleman by the name of Fred Wilson. Um, Fred Wilson is an old friend of mine. He's uh, the uh, the venture capitalist of all venture capitalists here in New York City, um, a guy who invests in technology uh, companies, but technology companies of a particular kind. His c- company, his firm, uh, current firm is called Union Square Ventures, and Fred has invested in a lot of um, uh, firms, companies, startups that people who are listening to this podcast will know. Um, maybe the most famous is Twitter. It's probably a technology some people have some familiarity dot, with. Dot com? Yeah. Dot yeah, com. Yeah, okay. Twitter, Twitter dot com. Okay. Um, but also uh, Kickstarter and a whole bunch of other companies. Um, and Fred, you've always kind of lived at the intersection of, um, of technology and um, culture in a lot of ways, just because the things you're really interested in music, you're really interested in in social applications and things that like tie people together. You're not like a big B2B um, uh, enterprise software guy. Never been like that person. You've always kind of invested where technology meets media. So um, I want to just kick this off by asking you this question, which is, you know, as Twitter has become in a, in a lot of ways as central to the discussion of politics as um, any medium currently, right? I mean, it's as big a deal. It's not. It doesn't have the, the 
in some ways the reach or the throw weight of, of broadcast television yet, but in terms of uh, having a cascading effect on how uh, reporters like uh, Will and me cover politics in terms of the discussion among political elites. It's as influential as any medium, as certainly more than um, radio, um, as influential in a lot of ways as television. So my question to you is when you first uh, met those guys, um, Evan and Biz, when they were starting this company, um, what did you did you imagine that Twitter could turn into what it has turned into um, in terms of how it's become such an incredibly for, important and influential forum for political and social discourse? I, the answer to that is yes, although I didn't see the, the political use case as clearly, you know, in my mind when, um, when I decided that we should invest in Twitter. What I, what I saw was that it was a lot like blogging, but anybody could do it. It was kind of like blogging me text messaging, so anybody could send a text. Not everybody could write, you know, a, a cohesive um, story like the two of you can do. So um, – I thought that it would be mainstream in the way that blogging could never be mainstream, but it had the uh, sort of all the other good things that came from blogging, the the discourse and the reaction and sort of the real-time uh, kind of nature of it was, was there, but it was something that everybody could do. So I actually really thought it was something that, that everybody would do, and I never really thought about how it would be particularly potent to a candidate or a campaign or a celebrity or an athlete who wanted to, in a way, get their own message out and bypass uh, the, the traditional channel. And I think that's part of why it's become so potent. I mean, one of the things about, about doing the kind of investing that you do um, and that other venture capitalists do who invest in consumer-facing technology, right? You're always looking for, like, big addressable markets, right? right. You're like, that's part of what makes a uh, an investment compelling. Can can, can this company I'm about to invest in be something that millions of people use as opposed to hundreds or thousands, right? right. Um, Twitter was clearly that. But it's, and so in, in some sense, a very democratic medium. But it also has become kind of a top-down medium in a lot of ways, right? And in the sense that, you know, the president of the United States has a Twitter account and every presidential candidate has a Twitter account and every big celebrity has one, which are used both to communicate with their fans, but also in kind of in a much more traditional way to market themselves. Right. Well, I think that that's the, that's the thing that people don't totally understand about Twitter. And I don't want to get into the sort of the stock market stuff. But, you know, the, the current bear case on Twitter is that it only has 300 million monthly active users, whereas Facebook has, you know, a billion and a quarter or something like that. So people say, oh, Twitter's so small. I think one of the things is that Twitter really is a little bit more hierarchical than Facebook. Facebook is truly a platform that everybody uses. And in the case of Twitter, the people who have followings um, are more powerful on Twitter than people who don't have followings. So it's not as democratic in a way as, as something like Facebook is. Um, and that's why I think it, it's not as popular for everybody to use. But for people who have followings, and they could be small followings or massive followings, in some ways Twitter's a better place than Facebook. It, these things always go in strange directions. I was, I wrote a story, I was in the Twitter offices to write a story about Twitter at the beginning of 2008 for New York Magazine. And I was in there and at the time, that you know, they talked about how this was originally something that was helped to find people at parties at South by Southwest. You know, it was almost like a location. Here's where I am, come to this bar and so on. And so while I was there and I was, I was sitting in this very dull meeting about software architecture and so on, I was not even on, I signed up to uh, Twitter for the story. While I was there, I started noticing that some of my friends were pointing out that the plane had landed in the Hudson. Right. And it was, of course, the day that Sully Salzberger landed the, the, the plane there. And, of course, Twitter, which was breaking the story, had nobody in the office had any idea what was going on, which felt like, well, that's a very new kind of newsroom uh, notion. But the thing that really blew me away the most about it, that now that Twitter, I, I want to know if they anticipated this or if they just benefited from it. it and the, that story ends with just the insane notion that there was someone sitting on the edge of the of of the Hudson River and a plane fell from the sky and landed in the river in front of them their first thought was not ah or how do I, I got to help those guys it was i have to get out my phone and i have to take a picture of this and this was even before this is before like they had to use twitpic the little application add-on to do this and i'm gonna, then i'm going to load this for the world to see that's how that story was reported if if a if a newspaper photographer had gotten that initial photo, that's a Pulitzer Prize winning photo in a lot of ways. And I finished the story saying, 
wow, if this is something that everyone's just going to do, the world is just never, ever going to be the same. The world has never actually been the same since then. Is that something that they anticipated? Is that something that just kind of fell into? Or are you looking at the company, saw that? Like, how, how quickly did they evolve to how maybe the users were using it differently than the way they initially intended? So the story of Twitter is that they didn't anticipate any of this, really. I mean, the users um, took the basic tool that they put, you know, into people's hands and started to show how to use it. I mean, hashtags, for example, were created by the users. The at notion, like at Fred Wilson or at Jay Heil, that was created by users. And then they said, oh, look, people are using these things. Let's change the software so that those things become you know, functional in the product as opposed to non-functional. And so the users basically led the company to the use cases. And, you know, the plane landing in the Hudson is a great example of that. But, you know, Fallon, for example, started using it in late night television to go back to the prior conversation and started creating all these really fun, clever games with it that uh, made his show fun to watch and made people on Twitter take out their phones. So, Really, I think the users found the use cases more than Twitter, and Twitter just kind of followed them as quickly as they could and, and tried to amplify them. There is still inherently the notion that as, as good as Twitter is and as much as you can get from it, it's still literally only 140 characters. Right. Like there's only so many ideas, no matter how concise you are, no matter how quickly you can do it, there's only so many characters you can fit into that. Some have argued that someone like Trump, for example, it's funny how he keeps coming up in these conversations, uh, he seems to have mastered the medium in a lot of ways because he's just very strong, one small point, strong statement uh, in regard to this and and this guy's a loser or I'm so uh, how shocking or, or so on like there seems to be a reactionary notion to his campaign when in a lot of ways he's almost running from running on Twitter like he's running his campaign he doesn't do a lot of appearances he calls into the Sunday talk shows uh, from his kitchen like he's almost running or so you virtually think. yeah sorry, sorry could be from his bed yeah it could be from his bed no, I'm just gonna go with kitchen <laughs> no. it's just gonna make me feel you better you wanna keep that image of Trump yeah. in his slippers uh, uh, yeah I'm, 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 there are four or five rooms that are off limits to my imagination, imagination. of what Donald Trump uh, <laughs> is sending his tweets from but uh, you know is it's fascinating to me because on one hand, it's opened up all these new worlds of political discourse and all these different things and these new voices. I think more than anything, there's all these new voices now that we weren't hearing before. It's been democratizing that way. On the other hand, you hear a lot of observers both in the media and people in the world of politics saying, yeah, but it's really hard sometimes to actually have a conversation about anything. And you hear this from – and, you know, Twitter sometimes gotten accused of not being, I guess, quick to respond to abuse, like when people are abused online a little bit. Is that – is there a fear that by going with what the users – obviously, it's a smart business sense and smart as a user experience – to follow what they want, there's a downside to that, which is almost that it can get a little out of your control? Well, they struggle with that for a long, long time in terms of what, you know, their reaction should be to – misuse of the platform. I mean, the, uh, probably the best example is, you know, organizations like ISIS using it. Should Twitter allow that or should they not allow that? Um, and that's a really interesting conversation in its own right. Probably we could spend the next uh, 10 minutes talking about that. But I think they have tried very hard to strike a balance between making the platform um, uh, open to all kinds of use cases um, while trying to constrain um, things that are truly damaging. And that I think that there is, there's no obvious, you know, balance. They have to constantly try to strike it. The other thing I would say is that the whole concept of sound bites um, is something that started, you know, in television, I think, or maybe radio. I don't know. You, you both of you probably have a better sense of that than me. But Twitter is a great place for sound bites. Um, you, if you only have 140 characters, you have to say something that's memorable that people will will, will uh, react to. And so I think that uh, it is, in some ways, playing into that same sort of communication style that has worked well for campaigns and politicians over the years. Fred, let me ask you this question. So in the course of you were you you've invested in Twitter first in what year? 2007. You were on the board until what year? 2011 or 2012. Okay. So in the span of like five years that you were like really intensely involved in the company, mm -hmm. how much debate was there over over giving up the 140 characters and moving to either a larger format or, or some uh, alternative format? 
I think there was a fair bit of debate inside the company, but it didn't really elevate very much to the board level. Um, that's partially because during the time that um, I was there, Jack was the CEO, and then Ev was the CEO, and then I left around the time that Dick became the CEO. And both Jack and Ev were very strong-minded product leaders, and the board wasn't going to really get into a debate with them about what was right or wrong. The board was more or less letting them drive those conversations. But I'm sure inside the company it was debated endlessly. Let me ask you a question about uh, this is a, an innovation, a Twitter innovation that happened, you know, roughly around the time that we started Bloomberg Politics. Um, it really wasn't a Twitter innovation at first. It was it was Meerkat, right? Mm-hmm. So the notion of being able to do um, video streaming. Uh, live video streaming. That application got built. It was built on top of Twitter. Then Twitter made it harder for Meerkat to build on top of Twitter, and they started their own application that was called Periscope, right? That exists in the world now. When I first saw that, I thought, this is going to be huge, right? Because it was clear that in our business, at least, um, you know, in a world where um, budgets have tightened for uh, news organizations who want to send out crews, um, where when I first started doing this 25 years ago, you know, there were tons of cameras at every presidential candidate's event. Now, again, because budgets have been constrained, because news organizations have shrunk, and because there's so many candidates out there, right, the number of crews that people send out is much, much fewer. There are many, many candidate events that are not covered by full television crews now. But most of them have a reporter or two there, at least, at a minimum. And I thought when Periscope slash Meerkat first came along, you'd see a lot of reporters who would be Meerkatting slash Periscoping um, from a lot of candidate events. And that, especially with Periscope, allowing you to embed video within the Twitter stream, that we'd see that all over the place. It hasn't really happened. I mean, there's people who Periscope, I do occasionally, but my feed is not, even though I have a lot of journalists and a lot of political journalists in my feed, my feed is not filled with Periscope streams um, in the way that I would have predicted a year ago that would be the case. Again, I know this has all happened subtly. You're still someone who has who owns a lot of Twitter stock um, and has a lot of emotional attachment to the company. You're not on the board anymore. But I just ask you, just as, a, as someone who's very involved in Twitter, and I know spends a lot of time every day on the site, right? Why do you think that's why would that Periscope hasn't been, become more pervasive? Why hasn't it taken off in the way that I, as a as an optimist about it, or at least uh, someone who had a had a, a sense and enthusiasm for it, thought it would a year ago? Well, I think first of all, because not very many people are good at periscoping, um, and there was a lot of really bad people periscoping and filling up people's Twitter feeds with bad real time video that no one cares about. I still get notifications that. You know, from people that I follow on Twitter or Periscope, that someone's going live, and I'm like, that's the last thing I want to see. Now, if 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 I saw a notification that you were going live with Donald Trump, that's the first thing I'd want right. to see. As long so, as it wasn't in the bathroom. Right. As long as it wasn't in the bathroom, just to be as clear as possible. So I think that that we haven't seen the people who are truly skilled at that medium adopted as much as I would like to see them do it. We also haven't seen people who for some reason, have unique talent in that meeting, medium emerge. And I think we will see that. Um, and the other thing is that that technology is also being used a lot for people uh, to turn the camera on themselves. So the interesting thing about broadcasting live is there's two ways you can do it. You can turn the camera towards you and broadcast yourself, or you can turn the camera away from you and broadcast what you're seeing. And Periscope and Meerkat were both built initially for the latter, to broadcast what you're seeing. And there are other companies, a company called You Now, which we're an investor in, which was built from the ground up to broadcast me. Right. And that has taken off much, much more quickly. Basically like broadcast selfies. Correct. Right. So if you go into You Now, you will see amazing things, amazing things, and horrifying things too. But you will see ama- people broadcast themselves sleeping. Now, you think that's crazy, but people are obsessed with watching people sleep. You would never think that to be a, a popular form of entertainment, and yet... It is surprisingly. It, it's just, just let me. Uh, <laughs> for what it, for what it's worth, uh, you know, I mean, I feel like, like you know, m- most of my work is proof that people will watch people sleep. Yeah. <laughs> you know I mean, I take a lot of pride in that. I was gonna say, basically, I feel like we pay you to watch you, just pay oh, yeah. you to sleep, essentially. Listen. Well, yeah. um, that leads to another uh, question that I have for you, Fred, to move away from Twitter. Just, um, you mentioned you now. Right. Are there other social platforms that you see, um, either that you're think about investing and have invested in, aren't going to invest in but still think are interesting that have particular that have you think might have particular resonance in the political world well I think that the, these platforms have to be um, they have to be broadcast uh, scale to be relevant in the political world so things like messaging which are enormously huge um, 
you know, WeChat, uh, WhatsApp, Facebook Messenger, those kinds of things, I don't think are going to be particularly relevant in the political realm unless it's somebody, you know, capturing an errant text message that they shouldn't have and screenshotting it and putting it out there. I mean, they, you know, obviously with, you know, uh, situations like what happened with, um, oh, what's his name, uh, the local politician here in New York. Um, Wiener? Yeah, with Wiener, you know, like there are things that happen in the messaging space that are relevant, but but I don't think that they become channels for political discourse or, or, or campaigning or whatever. So, you know, there, are, you know, Snapchat I think is trying, but you know, I think Snapchat is really very, and it's a huge platform, but it's very much stuck in, in the you know, twelve to twenty-four generation, and they use it really as their own little private you know playground, and I don't think it's really, you know, emerged as a as a tour de force in the political world. So the answer is, it's not obvious to me. Um, what is on the horizon in terms of technology and, and social platforms that could impact politics the way that um, something like Periscope or Twitter has? I find that interesting, too, because, you know, it was eight years ago, everyone spent so much time saying, well, one of the reasons that Bill Clinton is causing so much trouble to Hillary in this election is he doesn't know how elections are done now. And what, it's funny that you talk about not being able to look into the future of what is going to happen, because already four years ago was dramatically different than now. Four years ago from... Uh, from now will be dra- dramatically different from now and so on down the line. Do you, as someone that is involved in Twitter and invo- you know has been there from the beginning, is it just you personally? Is it what you have as your primary basis for? Like, do you use Twitter as a supplement to coverage or as the as the si- signature centerpiece of your coverage? I'd say it's the primary source of news and information that I use in my life. Um, I've found that it's very difficult for me to use the traditional media outlets the way that we used to use them. And I need, I need something that can roll it all up into a single view for me. Some, some people use Reddit for that. I use Twitter for that. You're a, an, a guy who has political interests. You've donated to a lot of candidates um, in both parties over the course of your lifetime that I know about. Um, and you're really interested in public policy and trying to create public policy that's, I don't want to say tech-friendly because it's not, I don't, I don't think you think of it as you know, what's good for the tech industry, although that's part of it. It's more what's good for innovation, right? Like right. trying to try to create a public policy environment where innovation can flourish broadly. And of course, that is good for the tech industry, but it's also good for the broader economy. So looking across the spectrum of the existing presidential candidates, Republican and Democrat alike, are there candidates right now that, again, without asking you to like state a preference personally, are there candidates who are appealing from that perspective? Who's good on the questions of the new economy, the innovation economy? Who's thinking about these things in ways that you find appealing? Well, the, th- the three candidates that I think have done the best job of wrapping their heads around uh, tech, Silicon Valley, and the broader tech community are Rubio, Cruz, and Hillary. Um, and uh, they are the, I think, uh, Rubio and Cruz are, I think, the most forward-thinking um, in terms of tech policy on the Republican side. And Hillary has a good policy team, and they have made, you know, a very, very strong efforts to understand tech policy and try to at least have a balanced uh, view of it. You know, Rubio and Hillary are, they would say, diametrically opposed to each other on these issues. Um, so, you know, particularly over not uh, over, over the questions that revolve around the sharing economy, where Hillary has been uh, been much more wary about embracing the Uber economy, the Airbnb economy, and Rubio has tried to make this a point of generational contrast, where he basically stands up and says, Hillary Clinton is living in the old world, the uh, industrial economy. Uh, she wants to try to protect the old uh, unionized uh, forces that uh, dominate a lot of that economy. I want to be forward thinking. I want to brace the future. I'm a younger man. I understand Uber. I understand Airbnb, and I want to be friendly towards that. So it's interesting to me that you mentioned the two of them as being both strong. Do you see that contrast? Is that a meaningful thing? Or do you think that that he's making more of that than really exists just to try to further his kind of generational political ambition? Well, I think that both of them see that there's opportunity and danger uh, in these these issues. And they've spent a lot of time trying to understand them and and have a point of view on them. Uh, I think that Hillary's a little more sophisticated in this because she, what she understands is 
that Uber isn't necessarily good for everybody and Airbnb isn't necessarily good for everybody. When you live in an apartment building in New York City and your next door neighbor is renting out their apartment every night to a different person on Airbnb, that's not good for you, right? And Rubio, I think, is a little naive in that he thinks that these things, these new services are utopia for everybody. They're not. You know, they're just as bad for as many people as they're good for as many people. And they, they do need to, any new kind of technology that comes to market needs to have new rules and regulations written about them. And the idea that there should be no regulation on these things is nonsense. Right. And let me ask you about Rand Paul just real quick at the end here. Um, you know, a year ago, um, not only did a lot of people throw, think Rand Paul was a highly viable, plausible uh, Republican a potential Republican nominee, but he was particularly there was a particular level of interest in among people who are like you, and by that I mean you know in the Silicon Valley community, investors, technologists, people like that who saw Paul's kind of libertarianism as really appealing. I'm not saying you're a libertarian, but I mean there are many people who you know who are, um, and yet that never really took off either. So do you have an explanation for why it was that Rand Paul did not connect with a constituency that a lot of people thought would be a very natural? group of supporters for him. You know, I've spent a little bit of time with Rand Paul, and, and I know a lot of people in the tech community have. And you're right, the libertarian perspective is very appealing to people in the tech sector. But he doesn't back it up with a particularly strong understanding of the technology and the and the issues and, and, and why they're important. He has this very sort of, we should just leave things alone, we should not regulate them. And, and he can't go any deeper than that. And that's disappointing to me, and I think that's disappointing to a lot of people. And I think that's where Rubio and Cruz are better, is that they have this ability to actually get into a substantive conversation about what all this means. They, they are, you know, anti-regulation, and they are, uh, you know, sort of in that same camp when they come at these issues, but they're, it seems like they can have a more substantive conversation, like they've actually used the products, they've actually thought through some of the implications of these things. And and Rand has been disappointing to me, personally anyway, that he is, seems a little almost um, lost a little bit when you when you want to go deep on these issues with him. And does Rand Paul have an iPhone? Is he just bad? <laughs> is he just bad at technology? Is he older? Like, it, like when you're talking to him about this, is it just that, like, is it like talking to someone's dad about these things? Or is it just because Cruz and Rubio are younger? I think they're smarter. Yeah, you think, really do? I think if you measure the IQ of Ted Cruz or Marco Rubio and you measured the IQ of Rand Paul, you would find that they are 20 to 30 points higher <laughs> than him. Wow, that's that's kind of awesome, man. Okay, so uh, you <laughs> know right. when you think about like a good Paul way, Dummer. when you think about, and by the way, and by the way, Obama <laughs> is brilliant, and I think that Hillary's pretty smart too. Yeah. And and you know what I want in a president is someone who's smarter than me. Well, I know. And it's not easy to get. I know who I'm not calling for my lifeline. Well, I, I have a presidential millionaire. The thing, the, thing is, the thing is, Fred, you're smarter than almost everybody, so that's a very high standard. The other thing is I kind of think it's a great way to end a podcast by saying uh, uh, the headline out of this podcast, Fred Wilson calls Rand Paul a moron. A moron. Yes. A dummy. An imbecile. And why, why, why did Rand Paul not connect with the tech industry? Because he's just too fucking stupid. Because he's dumb. Quoting Fred Wilson. There. That's exactly. Word for word. Word for word. word, for word. We have the tape. It's Fred, word for word. thank you for doing this. You're welcome. It's fun. Um, Will, hey, you know what? Yes, sir. Our podcast is over. Nailed it. You know, the great thing about this is that um, we're going to get to do it again. And we called it Culture Caucus because it's about the intersection of politics and mass culture. And by that, we mean really pretty much everything. Today, Mm -hmm. we talked about uh, late night television Mm -hmm. and about technology. Um, on a future episode, we may talk about sports or right. Star Wars. Oscars times or, coming oh, up. Oh, the yeah. Oscars and the yeah. Golden Globes are coming up. There's all kinds of great stuff we can talk about. It's going to be great. Um, and we're going to end up at some point making our argument for why we think PED should be legalized. I know that. There's no question. We're getting there for I'm sure. Very, I'm very Rand Paul about that. Yeah, very Rand Paul. PEDs for everyone. In fact, that may just mean I'm dumb. I, think, I don't know. At this moment, <laughs> at this moment, I think I'm going to go take some PEDs right now. And I'm not sure whether they will actually improve my performance or diminish it. But. It'll still be enjoyable. The sad part is I took them before the podcast. Oh, <laughs> I'm feeling, oh, yeah, it's so terrible. They, they take a little longer to kick in than you might Apparently. hope. All right, so this is it. We're saying goodbye for me and Will Leach. Have a great day, night, morning, whenever you happen to be listening to this. Bye. Bye.